Well, Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, a uh, very, very warm welcome to uh, this final lecture in the LSE European Institute's uh, Future of Europe series, which is held, as I'm sure you all know by now, with FT Business. Um, and what can I say about it? As I say, it's the final, final lecture. I'm not normally given to hyperbole, but by any measure, I think that the series this year can be counted an outstanding success. We've had no fewer than 26 events this academic year, during which we have hosted uh, the Prime Minister of Sweden and Hungary, eight European uh, EU foreign ministers or Europe ministers, three finance ministers, central bank governors, four EU commissioners, and so the list goes on. President of the European Parliament, President of the EBRD, leader of Her Majesty's opposition, and many other distinguished experts from public service, from academia. I'd like to thank in particular our media partners for the second year running now, uh, FT Business, um, whose generous support has, um, as they say, made all this possible, uh, and in particular, Angus Cushley and Claire Sharp. It's been a hugely fruitful collaboration, and the series is now firmly on the radar screen of decision makers and opinion formers right across Europe, and we very much look forward to continuing it. Now, I come to the main action of this evening and the reason why you're all here, because this evening we're delighted to have with us Lord Patton of Barnes, Chris Patton, to you and me. Um, when I say that he is by common consent one of the most distinguished figures in public life in this country and more broadly internationally, he probably won't thank me. It sounds very, sounds very worthy. Uh, it's not like it also, well, I was going to say it also. Well, it also makes him sound as though he is he is 105, and as, as you can see, uh, clearly he is very far from it. Um, Chris Patton has held what must be one of the most varied and interesting political careers. Uh, and what's interesting from our particular point of view tonight is that he had, had to come at the, he's had to come at the question of Europe in so many different ways. Always. I should say, as a committed European, um, and one, by the same token, who has never hidden his admiration of the United States, even when he has had his public differences, sometimes public differences, with U.S. policy. For our purposes, just by way of background, the story starts when Chris Patton was director of the research department of the Conservative Party, where I was later to cut my own political teeth and where he still held in great uh, affection and respect. And that would have included, at the time, 1975, honing the arguments for Britain's continued membership of the European Union in the 1975 referendum campaign. Later, as Secretary of State for the Environment, he found himself tangling with EU draft EC, at the time draft directives in the EC's Environment Council. As Conservative Party Chairman from um, 1990 to 1992, having to wrestle with the party's own European demons, then observing Europe from points east, as it were, as the last governor of Hong Kong to 1997, and from where perhaps, I guess, but you'll tell me if I'm wrong, Europe might not always have seemed quite as important as we often fancy. Then from 1999 to 2004, as the EU's External Affairs Commissioner, projecting Europe onto the world stage, doing the job with wit uh, and charm and persuasiveness, not to mention the humor for which he's well known, at the same time 
as Europeans were tearing themselves apart over Iraq and transatlantic relations were, taking, were in nosedive. But let's remember that this was also a time when a huge part of the European family was being reunited as the EU went from 15 to 25 members, now 27. It's also when, as External Affairs Commissioner, Chris Patton had to work very closely with Javier Solana as the EU's High Representative for Common Foreign and Security Policy. And I, for one, will certainly be very interested in what um, Chris Patton has to say about the combining of the two roles into a new EU Foreign Minister under the Lisbon Treaty and also the creation, what he has to say about the creation of a new EU President, for that matter. Just to bring the story very quickly up to date, um, uh, he then chaired the body which set up the European Research Council. He's now Chancellor of the Universities of Newcastle and of Oxford, at which point it's customary for LSE academics, including our, our venerable director, to make some remark to the effect that we all have our crosses to bear. I think that's a bit ungracious, so I won't say such a thing. Oh dear, I just did. Um, anyway. Chris Patton is the author of several books, uh, including East and West and Not Quite the Diplomat, Home Truths About World Affairs, the title of which was obviously deemed a little bit subtle and defeat by his American publishers who renamed it Cousins and Strangers, America, Britain and Europe in the New Century. Both cracking reads, incidentally, strongly recommended with some great anecdotes as well as insights and the author's always unerring feel for le mot juste. But enough of the hagiography. Um, having said himself the question, why not, you'd like a bit more? Um, I think that the audience would like to hear from you now. You said yourself the question of whether Europe has a foreign policy. I uh, guess you're now about to answer that. Uh, we look forward to it very much, Chris. As per usual, uh, we will then, Chris will then take questions. The ladies and gentlemen, Lord Patton of Barnes. Morris, uh, uh, ambassadors, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, thank you very much indeed for that um, uh, kind and on the whole accurate um, uh, introduction. Uh, and uh, I'm very honored to be asked to uh, complete this series of lectures by such uh, distinguished um, European uh, politicians uh, and uh, uh, officials. Um, I hope you won't regard this evening's performance as uh, bathos. Uh, there were several uh, of those occasions which I would have liked to have been able to attend myself. I, I would have particularly enjoyed being here for the leader of the opposition speech on Europe, which um, uh, I'm sure I would have found um, uh, enlightening. Anyway, thank you for inviting me, uh, and I guess I should begin with the telegrammatic uh, answer to your question, uh, does Europe have a foreign policy, uh, and the answer is up to a point, Lord Copper. Typecasting, I think, bedevils the European debate uh, in this country, and rhetorical vacuity bedevils it in several of our European partners. In this country, uh, if you believe that the United Kingdom should take a strong central role 
in the development of the European Union uh, if you believe that we should be as positive about our relationship with uh, the other member states of the European Union as we are about our uh, role in NATO, then the assumption is that you are some sort of wild-eyed federast uh, seeking to pillage national sovereignty and to surrender Britain to rule from Brussels. When I went as uh, European Commissioner uh, to uh, Brussels, uh, uh, a departure which was defined by the Daily Telegraph editorially as a moment when I had turned my back on the British way of life, uh, the Sun newspaper, which usually takes an even more subtle and nuanced um, <laughs> Uh, uh, position on these matters uh, had a cartoon uh, in the left hand part of which I was seen um, weeping over uh, the Union flag in Hong Kong and in the right hand part of which um, I was seen hanging, handing over the Union flag to some unnamed um, Führer uh, in uh, Brussels such is life with the admirable and always balanced uh, British press. If, on the other hand, you criticize some of the things which the EU does and some of the ways in which it's developed, the assumption is that you're a root and branch Eurosceptic. Well, let me try to explain my own position. I believe and believe very strongly that the United Kingdom should be a positive leading member of the European Union. When I say that, I'm reminded of the fact that I haven't always been as uncritically Europhile in my attitudes as some of those I now hear speaking in the House of Lords on the other side of the argument. Their careers have taken them from uh, more Europhile positions than I've ever embraced to uh, extraordinary degrees of Euroscepticism. But I dare say that is um, a phase through which my own party is uh, passing rather grumpily and ineffectively. I believe that the European Union has been an extraordinary achievement in economic integration and sovereignty sharing. Uh, I think, mind you, that sovereignty itself is a pretty slippery concept. Uh, all sovereign states allegedly sovereign states these days have to work more closely together in order to deal with common problems with global problems. You mentioned my last two books. Um, if I can uh, mention my next book, which I hope you'll invite me to the LSE to lecture you about and indeed to sign in the autumn, uh, it does deal with that uh, issue. Uh, Penguin what Next, Surviving the 21st Century, available at all the best bookstops. Um, at the end of the day, when considering these questions of sovereignty, I guess that, like others, I take some comfort from uh, the point which Douglas Hurd has made periodically, that here we are, after over 30 years of membership of the European Union, with the Queen still 
mercifully on the throne with her head still mercifully on our banknotes and with Britain still going to war from time to time at the behest of American presidents. So, so nothing really uh, changed fundamentally in, uh, uh, in relation to British sovereignty. I think on the other hand that while our debate uh, in uh, Britain on Europe rumbles round and round the same track, uh, that in Europe much of the debate has been increasingly distanced from the realities of political life in the member states concerned. Uh, I don't believe that many, if any, of the member states of the European Union uh, would uh, boast a political party which could get elected advocating surrender of control over taxation, uh, over social security policy, over education policy, over labor market policy. Um, I don't think even Luxembourg uh, would elect a government uh, on those lines, particularly if tax policy and transparency were involved. Uh, nor would any country accept, of course, that Brussels should have final say over foreign and security policy, deciding, for example, whether young Europeans should risk their lives for a policy made wholly in Brussels. And that seems to me to be, in many respects, at the heart of any discussion about European foreign and security policy. While it is true that European member states make a much bigger impact internationally when they work together, and many people have been keen on that proposition, Margaret Thatcher was keen on that proposition from time to time, particularly when the member states could be persuaded to agree with her, while that is certainly true, the reality is that there continue to be as many foreign ministers as there are member states, as many foreign ministries as there are member states, and as many prime ministers as there are foreign ministers, all of them anxious to be foreign minister, particularly when domestic politics comes um, a, a little awkward. Uh, something which I'm sure Mr. Miliband and Mr. Brown are noting uh, at the moment. We may be able to coordinate our responses to international issues more effectively, but alas, there is a gap between rhetoric and reality uh, in uh, European foreign and security policy, and I think that it is uh, because, of its very, because of the very nature of the subject likely uh, to remain. None of that, none of that, I say swiftly, should subtract from the remarkable achievement of the European construction. In a real sense, European integration is the price that Europe had to pay and was prepared to pay to keep the American security guarantee after the Second World War. Uh, I've pointed out before that 
we've got the foundation, the establishment of the common market and NATO almost entirely the wrong way round. The assumption is always that the establishment of the common market was entirely a European initiative, uh, that the Americans were desperate to establish NATO uh, and we let them get on with it. In fact, uh, the truth is uh, that we were very keen to keep uh, America uh, in uh, Europe uh, and part of the price we had to pay for that was to make it clear to the Americans that they weren't going to be obliged to come back uh, to Europe's defense uh, in a third uh, European civil war in the 20th century. France and Germany had, of course, fought three wars in 70 years. The very first time that I heard my predecessor but one uh, at uh, Oxford University talk about Europe, this was a point that he made passionately. Uh, the uh, uh, young men who had been brought together at Europe's finest universities to uh, learn about European civilization, who had then uh, uh, gone back to their own countries in 1914, in 1939, and learned to uh, kill one another. My wife's father um, who was uh, a Cambridge man, an Olympic athlete who ran in the 1936 uh, Olympic Games, was killed um, in the Battle of the Falaise Gap, actually by the RAF. It's what's called, I never quite understood the expression, friendly fire. And on, his, uh, uh, on the war memorial in Pembroke College, Cambridge, uh, marking his death, there are British names and Dominion names, American names, and German names, which is a reminder of the extent to which those wars were European uh, civil wars. The European Common Market and the European Union were an attempt to end xenophobic nationalism without obliterating a European patriotism. Uh, with France and Germany lashed together at the heart of the whole enterprise in an act of historic reconciliation which we've never seen the like of, for example, in Asia between China and uh, Japan. I can understand that for many people the greatest, the most symbolic European moment, the most symbolic European photograph is that one of uh, President Mitterrand and Chancellor Kohl at the Oshery in Verdun, uh, arm in arm with wreaths in their other hands. It is remarkable that um, there has been this degree of economic integration and therefore political integration um, in Europe. Uh, people may say that it's old hat to argue that the greatest reason uh, for the European Union has to pre been prevent uh, a war in Europe, well, it may seem like that today, but it certainly wouldn't have seemed like that uh, 50 years ago. Uh, my father's generation spent um, much of their lives trying to, wishing that the Germans weren't spending so much on armaments. My grandfather's generation spent much of their time uh, with the same wish. We today 
spend much of our time trying to press the Germans to spend more uh, on armaments. Uh, I know which is preferable. Europe, after that great uh, uh, historic beginning, Europe has developed as a great economic power. The largest single market of independent states in the world, the largest trade bloc, uh, responsible for getting on for 30% of the world's output, a hugely significant civil power, but not, in my judgment, not as James Sheehan uh, argues correctly in a recent book, not a superpower, and nor, in my judgment, um, despite uh, the occasional speech by Mr. Blair on the subject, should we wish to become a superpower. Why aren't we a superpower? Partly because of the fractured responsibility for security and foreign policy uh, which I've referred to. Partly because we don't spend enough on our own security. Uh, France and the United Kingdom spend more than most of the other member states as a proportion of GDP on defense. But even in our countries, we've seen pretty flat procurement programs in the last few years, while the price of armaments has been uh, rising much more rapidly. In Germany, as you know, they only spend 1.5% of their GDP uh, on defense. 70% of that is on personnel and much of that on civilian employees. Spain's uh, expenditure on defense is, frankly, uh, pathetic. Uh, and I can't think, I can't think of many, if any, political parties, going back to my earlier test of political reality in Europe which will campaign in their next elections arguing for greater expenditure on defence. Will the Conservative Party in this country? Well, um, I'd look at the small print if I were you. So when it comes to Europe sending peacekeepers to Afghanistan or elsewhere in the world, we have to lease airlift capacity from the Ukrainians. When it comes to the biggest test facing us militarily at the moment in Afghanistan, we're short of equipment, short of equipment partly because, this, because as well as not spending enough money uh, on defense, uh, we haven't harmonized procurement policies. Indeed, the member states have blocked efforts to allow the application of competition policy rules to our defense industries. After 9-11, it was deemed um, uh, a good idea for Europe to develop its own security strategy. And that was done extremely rapidly by under Javier Solana's uh, admirable direction uh, with uh, officials like uh, Robert Cooper in the Secretariat playing uh, an important and distinguished role. Uh, 
And that document on security strategy rattled through the council at a rate of knots. The main reason why we managed to deal with it so speedily was the one issue that it didn't really tackle was the question of the use of force. Not least when we require the use of force in order to sustain the international rule of law. Uh, Europe is still very reluctant uh, to uh, accept the implications of that. There's a third reason why I think we haven't been as successful as I would like us to have been in the uh, development of a common foreign and security policy. There is a nervousness in standing up to uh, bullies, and there's a nervousness about us distancing ourselves from time to time from our transatlantic partners, the United States, uh, when we disagree with them. And perhaps I can now turn to looking at some of the consequences of what uh, I've described in a bit more detail. Throughout the um, 1980s and early 1990s, we agreed that uh, Europe would uh, be able to make a greater impact in the world if we worked uh, better together, uh, if we were able to develop <coughs> common positions. And we sought to do that through something called European uh, political cooperation, which, as I uh, argued in a book, involved making statements on almost every issue in the world, statements in which the nouns and adjectives were extraordinarily strong and the verbs extraordinarily weak. The inadequacies of that approach to foreign policy became increasingly apparent. They became apparent with the collapse of uh, the Soviet Empire, they became apparent as uh, people began to contrast Europe's economic power with its, um, uh, economic, uh, with its political impotence. And they particularly um, became apparent uh, with the dismemberment of Yugoslavia uh, in the 1990s. I think that was a particularly humiliating period for uh, European foreign policy. First of all, Europe couldn't make up its mind whether it wanted to prevent the dismemberment of Yugoslavia, expedite the dismemberment of Yugoslavia, or simply look the other way. The United States, in the presence of Secretary of State uh, Baker, while Europe dithered, and while probably 220,000 or so people were killed in Bosnia, the United States decided that it wouldn't get involved because, in Mr. Baker's word, words, it had no dog in that fight. And what mattered during the early 1990s more in uh, former Yugoslavia what matters, mattered more was not what Europe did, but what America declined to do. That had a sufficient impact on uh, the thinking of prime ministers and foreign ministers, 
to mean that at Maastricht and then more particularly in Amsterdam, uh, we tried to address uh, the institutional uh, arrangements which would be necessary in order to promote foreign, uh, a common foreign and security policy, and that led to the appointment of a high representative. A high representative can only be effective um, if he's able to advocate and stand for something which is more than a lowest common denominator policy. And that has, I think, uh, been uh, a problem which Javier Solana has attempted to cope with, with uh, ubiquity uh, and charm for uh, uh, eight years now. What's the, what's the record been? The most successful area for foreign policy in Europe has been what we have done to stabilize our continent. It's been the enlargement policy of the European Union which has been the agent of that, helping to secure regime change through the, through the offer of membership of the European Union. Uh, it's a policy which has helped to secure relative stability in the West Balkans, with uh, Croatia now well on the road to membership of the European Union. In my view, a country which, while not yet a member of the European Union, is in many respects closer to the standards of European Union membership than either Bulgaria or Romania. And we certainly helped to stabilize the situation in Central and Eastern Europe after the collapse of the Russian Empire, underpin, underpinning economic and political reform uh, in the countries of uh, that uh, region. I don't think it was a given uh, that uh, uh, we should have managed that process uh, of change without accepting Yugoslavia, without uh, violence and instability. The main question, I think, today is whether that process of enlargement has been completed. And there are a number of people who argue that that is uh, what we should decide. They say that... Uh, Enlargement has made it more difficult to reach, the, reach decisions in the European Union. There's no real evidence for that, as I think even Sciences Po in Paris and others have pointed out. The real arguments against further enlargement uh, are concerned with national identity, with the movement of labor, uh, and with the uh, dilution uh, of the control over the European agenda of some of the original member states. I hope that we can continue with our commitment to enlargement in the West Balkans. Secondly, I hope that we can handle our negoci the negotiations with Turkey with uh, sensitivity and as positively as possible. I worry that if Turkey does all that we're requiring at present of Turkey and then at the end of the day 
we decline to accept the Turkish application, uh, we will be able to say goodbye to being taken seriously as a geopolitical um, force in the world, and we'll lose an opportunity for building bridges between uh, civilizations and cultures. I think this is an issue which needs to be widely debated rather than locked into uh, council meetings in uh, Brussels. Uh, I think we will have to work extremely hard to mobilize public consent for Turkish membership of the European Union. Uh, I don't think that is impossible. Uh, it's not impossible unless, that is, one doesn't try it. I also think that we now have to handle the relationship with Ukraine and Moldova uh, much more positively. Uh, I think it is quite extraordinary uh, that we seem to fail to recognize uh, Ukraine's uh, European aspiration uh, with um, uh, a more positive endorsement from Brussels. So far, as I said, the enlargement policy has helped to stabilize the continent. I'm nervous that if we mishandle it, it will create instability around our borders. The two most obvious areas of failure in developing a foreign security policy when I was uh, a European commissioner were in our relations with Russia and in our policy in the Middle East. And let me turn briefly to those. Russia has, for the last several years, taken a very different view uh, of uh, the neighborhood uh, to the one which is predominant in, in the rest of Europe. We want to see uh, the countries uh, between us and the Russian Federation as strong, stable, prosperous uh, democracies. Uh, I think Russia wishes to see them as pliant uh, parts of a Tsarist sphere of influence. And Russia has been using energy policy in a pretty autarkic way, very ruthlessly, in order to secure that objective. It's been able to get away with that because of the resistance in a number of member states, very often those member states which are normally uh, most garrulous about the European mission, uh, reluctance in those member states to uh, accept the case for creating a real European energy policy. And it's also the case, of course, that in those member states, policy on Russia is largely driven uh, by large energy companies. People say that uh, we've got no other choice uh, in Europe because of our dependence on Russian gas and, to some extent, on Russian oil. It seems to me to overlook the rather obvious point that the Russians need customers. It's also, I think, to overlook the real danger that a lack of investment in the Russian energy industry means that they won't, uh, within the foreseeable future, have enough gas both for their own consumers and to sell uh, to the rest of uh, Europe. So I think that our policy um, on Russia has been a manifest failure. 
The other area that I mentioned is the Middle East, where no one doubts that the United States is the main player because of its historic relationship with Israel. But I do think it's been pretty wretched and pretty humiliating that in the last seven or eight years, we've been dragged along uh, on the chariot wheels of an American policy on the Middle East, on Palestine and Israel, which has been such a terrible and wretched failure. <clears throat> I used to be a member of the so-called quartet, the group that was put together to uh, drive the roadmap on peace uh, in the Middle East, a roadmap which wasn't drafted in Washington, a roadmap which was actually drafted in Copenhagen largely by the Danish foreign ministry. The quartet, of course, since it involved Europe, was six strong. Uh, it's what, um, uh, how to make, if you use conquer language, how to make a fora into a sixer, you invite the European Union. Uh, it uh, uh, was called, not unreasonably, by Amma Musa, the <coughs> Secretary General of the Arab League, as the Quartet Sans Trois. The Quartet Sans Trois, because it simply became a cover for whatever uh, President Bush uh, and uh, the National Security Council and Elliot Abrams deemed from time to time policy on the Middle East should be. I think there are two areas where this has been particularly damaging. First of all, no real pressure on uh, Israel to prevent, to stop uh, developments uh, on the West Bank. Secondly, the destruction of the efforts to involve Hamas more uh, positively uh, in government and to encourage them to turn away from violence. Now, I realize this is controversial, but it's always struck me as a very curious position for America to have taken up and an even more curious position for Britain and other European member states to have endorsed. It was the Americans who, perhaps more than anybody else, persuaded Britain to talk to Sinn Féin IRA in order to try to secure a peace in Northern Ireland. The people I used to be obliged to talk to when I was reorganizing the uh, police force in Northern Ireland, some of those people I knew had been responsible for killing people in the interests of their politics. But America quite properly pressed us to recognize that usually dealing with terrorism and political violence involves some sort of political accommodation with those people who have fired the guns and uh, fired the rockets. Why is it different? Why is it different in Palestine? What on earth was the point of wrecking the attempts pioneered by the Saudis to involve Hamas with Fatah in a government of national unity? What was the point in arming Fatah and trying to destroy Hamas in Gaza? 
Does anybody seriously think that you can have a peace settlement in Palestine uh, to Israel's great benefit, leaving Hamas out of it? Does anybody think you can, you can have a peace settlement in Palestine and Israel without talking to Syria? Does anybody think that there will be a settlement in Lebanon with Hezbollah without the involvement of Syria? All these interconnected issues are issues on which Europe should have been arguing very vigorously that it is a very rum sort of diplomacy to argue that you'll only talk to people if they agree with you first. I simply don't understand why in Europe we haven't recognized that while we have a more limited role in the United States in many respects in uh, the Middle East, we are doing nobody any favors by going along with a policy uh, which effectively uh, gives a veto over what we do and say to Elliot Abrams and the Israeli Foreign Ministry. I just don't think that makes any sort of, uh, any sort of sense whatsoever. Uh, and the victims include, um, in my judgment, the people of Israel. So I hope um, that we will, from time to time, have the courage to uh, stand up uh, for a more sensible policy in the Middle East. If we don't do so, it never ever raises the political price for American presidents and American administrations of following policies uh, which get absolutely nowhere except back to the cemetery. No one should suppose, of course, that with the retirement of uh, Mr. Bush in January next year to Crawford, Texas, uh, and with Mr. Ch Mr. Cheney's uh, return to a permanent duck shoot, that all our problems are going to melt away. The new president will face several problems uh, on all the main ones of which I hope that we in Europe will be able to be uh, helpful. First, the next American president is going to face huge pressure on trade. Uh, he's going to face a protectionist agenda. And I hope that we in Europe can help to avoid that being turned into protectionist policies. It would be nice to think that we in Europe would be more vigorous in our advocacy of a successful conclusion to the Doha round. Nice to think that we would remove some of the, uh, some of the uh, uh, reasons why Indians and Brazilians give for not themselves being more positive uh, by taking a more active role in reforming uh, our own agricultural policies. I think the most bizarre um, statement that's been made recently about food shortages and food um, price hikes has been by my old friend and colleague Michel Barnier, the French agriculture minister, who argued the other day that the right approach uh, to the world's present food problems was for everybody to develop their own common agricultural policy. Um, I think that 
um, uh, he must have had an enjoyable evening. <laughs> Secondly, uh, a new uh, American president uh, is going to be faced very quickly with having to develop a policy on climate change uh, because of the uh, important meeting on Kyoto fo uh, follow-up in uh, uh, Copenhagen uh, in, uh, uh, before the end of next year. In that, um, the most crucial issue, of course, is the relationship between America and China uh, on uh, climate issues. Uh, there I hope that Europe will be able to help positively um, uh, uh, in uh, establishing some accommodation. And I hope that we in Europe will drop the suggestion that we are only going to be prepared uh, to embrace more, uh, more substantial uh, commitments on uh, global warming and climate change if everybody else does so as well. I think it's much more important that we, we, we should set out what we're going to do and to do it regardless of how others behave. Thirdly, uh, another subject which a new American president is going to have to deal with pretty rapidly uh, is the uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty Renewal Conference in 2010. Uh, I think that that is a crucial conference because if we are going and this is relevant to North Korea, it's relevant to uh, Iran, if we're going to uh, get a commitment by non-nuclear states to a regime which is much more rigorous in monitoring and surveillance than the existing nuclear powers are going to have to demonstrate that we are prepared to uh, implement the commitments that we've already undertaken under the NPT but which we've, from which we've scandalously run away. I think there is a big role <clears throat> for Britain and France to play in that regard, since they're the only two nuclear states uh, in the European Union. And I think that, too, could help uh, a new American president. Fourthly, I hope that Europe will develop a common position which lasts from case to case on the concept of responsibility to protect, which slightly surprisingly was endorsed at the UN uh, summit uh, 18 months or so ago, um, while all else fell by the wayside uh, or fell under the assault from Ambassador Bolton's uh, machine gun. Never, I think, has somebody uh, enjoyed destruction in such a joyless way. Um, it does seem to me that while there is now a good deal of evidence of buyer's remorse in relation to responsibility to protect, that it is probably the most, uh, the most positive element to have come out of discussions about uh, international reactions to um, the horrors that take place uh, in sovereign states from time to time. It's the best response anybody, I think, has offered so far to the never-again uh, issue which we've discussed from Srebrenica to Rwanda and are now discussing in, in uh, Burma. So I hope that um, Britain, <coughs> France, and others uh, will develop 
common positions on responsibility to protect, that we will apply them or seek to apply them um, together. There's been some signs of disarray in Europe uh, over the application of R2P um, <clears throat> in Burma, and that we will um, seek to sell that, that policy <coughs> to those uh, uh, members of the United Nations who still think of sovereignty in Westphalian terms. Plenty for Europe to do. Will any of those problems be made easier by the institutional changes uh, which will follow from the European uh, Union uh, Treaty, provided it isn't given a thumbs down in the Irish referendum, and provided uh, it survives um, the endorsement of parliaments in the rest of uh, Europe. I guess that sometimes in Britain we underestimate the extent to which institutional change can create um, political momentum. But I am a little sceptical about how much will be changed uh, in Europe by the creation of a full-time president of the council and by not just a high representative for foreign and security policy, but a fantastically high representative for foreign and security policy. First of all, if there were occasionally problems, imagined of course, by the media between the European Commissioner for External Relations and the then only high representative, just imagine what the difficulties of the relationship will be between the very, very high representative and the President of the Commission and the President of the Council. I look forward to the discussions about the seating arrangements at the first meeting of the G8 um, after those arrangements <coughs> come into force. There will be particularly, I think, uh, uh, interesting discussions about the relationship between the President of the Council uh, and the uh, extremely high representative. Um, I can imagine some Presidents of the Council who would be content to be progress chasers on the European agenda. I think, for example, that if uh, Mr. Rasmussen, the admirable uh, Danish Prime Minister, was chosen as President of the Council, um, he would be very happy to get his nose deep into dossiers um, on uh, suckling calf subsidies uh, and ensure that the European Union uh, delivered uh, on such policies. More difficult to see um, our own much-loved former Prime Minister Mr. Blair getting quite as enthusiastic about that sort of detail were he to be President of the Council. I think he would be much happier uh, appearing at uh, conferences and having his photo taken in all sorts of exotic locales around the world um, as a sort of grand uh, European uh, Queen Mother. Uh, so I don't think these relationships are necessarily going to be um, all that easy to manage. I was in favor of a full-time president of the council, uh, provided the job is to drive the European agenda in the way that I uh, mentioned earlier. 
Uh, I think it is a different role from that of the President of the Commission. I think the benefit of the double-hatted, the bipotassic, uh, extremely high representative responsible both for what Javier has done so well up to date and what I did when I was a European Commissioner, I think the benefit is that it recognizes how much of foreign policy today is about issues which aren't uh, what we used to regard as being the meat and drink of foreign policy, how much of foreign policy is about energy, how much of foreign policy is about development assistance, how much of foreign policy uh, is about uh, economic issues and immigration and other matters as well. To combine uh, the Solana political brief with uh, my ability to deploy some of the instruments of the European Union in pursuit of foreign policies is, I think, creating a really important um, power centre in Europe. Uh, and I think it raises all sorts of questions for member states, which member states have been exceptionally reluctant to face up to, including our own. At a time when every foreign ministry in Europe is being pressed by its finance ministry to cut costs, at a time when every foreign ministry is uh, closing down embassies around the world, um, what case is there going to be uh, for resisting an increasingly uh, integrated domestic uh, or national foreign uh, service with the European foreign service. Which would you rather be? Would you rather be the Austrian ambassador in, I don't know, Canada, representing all of Austria's historic responsibilities in that great dominion? Or would you rather be, um, as an Austrian diplomat, the head of the European um, mission in Egypt or Venezuela, responsible not only for those issues on which Europe had agreed politically to work in common, but the development policy, the energy policy, and all the other things we were doing in common. Uh, it's what football managers call a no-brainer. And I felt very strongly myself when I was a European commissioner that we should have started some time ago discussions between the Commission, the Council and the Member States about ways in which we could integrate our foreign ministries much more effectively and have an in-out system for diplomats between European service and service in their own national uh, foreign offices. So, um, <clears throat> not the sort of points I will necessarily be making um, should I ever think it worthwhile taking part in the debate in the House of Lords on the European Union Treaty, but nevertheless a few random thoughts on institutional arrangements and European foreign and security policy um, to conclude these remarks. The most important point I want to leave with you is an effective European foreign and security policy above all depends on political will. And there is not, it's not a, anything but a statement of the blindingly obvious, there is not a political will in the European Union to be a superpower. Questions?
Can I, can I just ask um, uh, those of you, please indicate in the usual way whether you'd like to put a, uh, that you'd like to put a question. Um, we'll bunch them in threes. Chris, is that right? Anything you want. Yeah? Are you going to take them there? Okay. Yeah, can I? Um, well, so please, it's entirely up to you, wherever you're most comfortable. Okay. Um, please say who you are. Wait for the microphone to be brought to you. And no speeches, please. No smuggled in sub-questions and sub-sub-questions. One question, please. And, um, okay, who'd like to kick off? The gentleman, gentleman at the back in the... Yeah. Hello, my name is uh, Arthur. I'm from the um, Department of International Relations here at LSE. Um, I would like to, to, to bounce back on the question of uh, responsibility to protect and how far do you think that this should uh, be developed um, in, uh, in, in the future. Uh, for example, if we take the, the cases of, of, of Burma, uh, we all know that the problems lie within the, within the, the, the political nature of the regime and uh, uh, how, f how far should uh, problems of, of intervention be, uh, be taken into consideration because uh, the humanitarian problems uh, are, are, of course, uh, uh, there and obvious, but the solution, long-term solutions, uh, uh, the problem lies with the regime. And, okay. um, and how can this be better coordinated between the member states? Lovely. Thank you. Okay, another, another question. A question from down there. Gentleman in green, and then I'll go upstairs. Um, hi, my name is William Wong. I'm a CLAW Fellow. Um, Lord Patton, I was curious that you uh, suggested that the European Union could play a very constructive role as an intermediary, for instance, between the United States and China. And I suppose in reality, I personally, I've never seen the United States ever having the need to consult with Europe when it pursues its um, unilateral policies, nor does China. Uh, I'm just wondering. In fact, what seems to me is um, Europe is not even punching above its weight. Europe's just left the ring, basically. I just wonder how you feel about it. Thank you. Um, and then third question, lady right up at the top. Thanks. Thank you so much, Lord Patton. Thanks for your great, interesting uh, insights in Europe. My name is Irene Hell. I'm a Euro uh, German European <laughs> business correspondent. So um, I think the biggest challenge is uh, to promotes the European idea in all the sovereign states. So how could we sex up the European idea and what's wrong with being a superpower, a European superpower? Thanks. First of all, Arthur. Um, if I can do this in the presence of a former <coughs> very distinguished ambassador to the UN, uh, reasonably accurately. Um, let me just say a bit about the history. <clears throat> In response to Rwanda, in response to Srebrenica, in response to the sort of questions which Samantha Power um, has asked, like uh, other authors and other political leaders, Europe uh, and America and others became increasingly interested in the question of sovereignty in the modern world. Was the definition of sovereignty which had lasted since the Peace of Westphalia 
um, still relevant in the 20th, 21st century? Did we still believe that states have rights but that uh, individuals don't? And if we thought that individuals have rights as well as states, uh, what should we do when those rights are trampled by a sovereign state? What should the rest of us do? What, what is the response of international law? I think Bernard Kushner was one of the first to advocate um, the principle of humanitarian intervention in those circumstances. It was a principle which was taken further by Tony Blair in a remarkable speech uh, at Chicago in about 2001, 2002. Was it 19? Was it as early as that? All right. Um, a, a, a really remarkable speech. Um, Kofi Annan uh, then followed the point up um, in one of his speeches in the, I think both before and at the um, uh, UN uh, uh, General Assembly, I guess almost certainly written by Edward Mortimer, um, in which he talked about uh, individuals having rights as well as states. The problem about the concept <clears throat> for many members of the UN was that it sounded like an excuse for military intervention uh, by Western powers. Uh, and that was uh, uh, a suspicion uh, which was um, more than uh, strengthened uh, by uh, the way America behaved in Iraq and elsewhere. A Canadian commission, uh, of which um, my colleague Gareth Evans was one of the co-chairs, then produced a report um, which was followed, I think, by a report from another commission, um, slightly adjusting that concept of humanitarian intervention and trying to define the R2P, the responsibility to protect, in which um, they uh, made the point that this was not always about military intervention, this was about pre pre prevention, uh, this was about um, the responsibilities to use all other measures that you could uh, in order to protect people, that you should only even consider using force if it was proportionate if, and if every other um, uh, avenue had been tried and that you also had a responsibility, uh, whatever measures you took, uh, to try to build um, on uh, what had been uh, ruined. Now, as I said, slightly surprisingly, that was endorsed by the UN, many members of which have subsequently wondered what the hell they let themselves in for. And I think that is true of both the uh, Chinese uh, and the uh, Russians in particular, though I can imagine circumstances in which the United States might find um, R2P um, a bit difficult to uh, swallow. For Europe, the concept shouldn't be um, a difficult one to agree. And I don't think it should be difficult for us, given all our uh, rhetoric about um, working together, uh, to accept that we should seek to apply an agreed principle in the same way in circumstances like Burma. Heaven forbid another uh, situation like Rwanda should apply, but in situations like that uh, as well. 
it's obviously going to take some time to convince Chinese, who I think are much more significant here than the Russians, who I think um, uh, are much more um, driven by, uh, by interest from time to time than the Chinese. Um, I think it should be possible to convince the Chinese that as a great power, they have just as much of an interest in stability as the rest of us and should be just as concerned about the consequences of states failing uh, as the rest of us. Um, the amphetamines produced in Burma, uh, the drugs uh, uh, produced in Burma, uh, are principally, after all, going elsewhere in Asia, going to ASEAN countries and going into China uh, as well. Um, the Burmese case uh, is an example of where both its biggest neighbors, both China and India, have, in my view, uh, behaved pretty lamentably, both in relation to the murder of monks last year and in relation to the present crisis. The Indians try to explain to you um, uh, that um, they have to be worried about what's happening in Nagaland and have to be worried about spillovers into India. Um, the Chinese um, <clears throat> uh, tend to put their argument um, with greater principle um, or greater alleged principle, <coughs> even while I think it's true that they signed <coughs> a year or so back something like 24 commodity agreements with um, Burma. But I think we need um, – it's not an issue which you can um, simply uh, assert uh, on your own. Uh, it's something we have to convince um, other uh, of the significant uh, member states in the United Nations uh, to accept as well. But it does, I think, at least offer the prospect of something around which you can assemble uh, a consensus in the future. And I was pleased – um, that, the, that Pope Benedict mentioned it in his speech at the uh, UN um, uh, a month or so ago. We come to William Wong's question last. European idea. I don't know. I remember a, um, a colleague of mine coming back from a meeting of the European Convention and reporting to the commission who tutted suitably that he didn't get any sense of a European feeling in the corridors of the European Convention and the European Council that was taking place at the same time. Now, I was never really sure what that meant. What was this European feeling that he wasn't getting? No carpets, no seating arrangements, but no European feeling. Uh, and I think it's reflective of the way in which European argument can so frequently uh, resort to guff uh, and so frequently become um, simply uh, rhetorical. Um, Define your terms, as Professor Jode said. I think the original moral purpose of the European Union was absolutely clear. I think our vocation in relation to the 
liberated states of Central and Eastern Europe was clear. I think our responsibilities in relation to climate change, which seems to me to be incomparably the, incomparably the biggest issue on the international agenda, should be clear. But you get into Venusian language about European feelings and European idea, and I think it's not only the man on the Clapham omnibus, but the man on the knee omnibus, if they get on omnibuses in knee, um, uh, who's, uh, who would raise um, uh, an eyebrow. Uh, so what I would hope that we could acquire in the European debate is a language which is rather closer to real domestic politics. Um, it's a point which I think is extremely well made by um, David Marquand in a lecture which I didn't wholly agree with, the Von, the von Trott lecture, um, which he gave at um, Oxford a few weeks ago, and it's on, it's on the web, you can look it up. It's an extremely interesting lecture by a very strong pro-European with whose views on Turkey I don't agree. But he does make the point about um, involving European public opinion far more in the uh, European debate, not by conduct, conducting those, um, that debate in even more vacuous prose, but by trying to connect it with um, real politics um, rather more than is the case at the moment. I'll tell you where Europe should be helping to um, play uh, a role um, in uh, bringing China and America together. It's the one I mentioned. It's climate change. There won't be an agreement on climate change unless America and China agree, unless they find some way of dealing with historic responsibility for um, carbon emissions, unless they find some way of squaring per capita and total aggregate um, emissions, uh, in which they find some way of dealing with technology transfer. Those are going to be hugely difficult issues. What we're, what we're trying to do, it seems to me, on <clears throat> climate change, on global warming, is much more difficult than the diplomacy at Versailles, much more difficult than the diplomacy at Yalta. Here, we're asking people to persuade public opinion of the need for this or that course of action and then to go and turn politics uh, into uh, an international agreement. It's not a question of making an international agreement and then going home and selling it to people. In China, how do you persuade people that they have to accommodate environmental concern with the prosperity project? which has been the main legitimizing feature um, for the uh, regime. Incredibly difficult. And I think Europe can play a part in that. First of all, by doing what, uh, by, by pursuing as imaginative and positive a program as we can, regardless of what America or Canada, which has an abysmal record on these issues, um, or other countries do. Secondly, by being prominent 
in the debate about um, technology transfer by being much more prepared to commit to cooperation um, in areas like uh, carbon sequestration. I think there are a lot of ways in which, without being um, vainglorious, we can actually play quite an important role. And there is another, um, there's another role we can play too, though it's probably more relevant to America than it is to China. I think we in Europe, without resiling from our concerns about, about human rights in China, without resiling from our belief that sooner or later economic and social change has political consequences. I think it's very important for us to be prominent in arguing with the United States that China getting richer does not mean America getting poorer. That China is not a threat but a huge opportunity for the rest of the world that the rest of this century isn't going to be a hegemonic struggle, quote-unquote, between America and China. I think we can actually add a convincing voice to those who try to persuade America that there is hardly a single major global problem that we face today, from R2P to climate change, which we can actually manage unless we get the Chinese on board. I hate the idea uh, of uh, a developing um, alleged argument between uh, illiberal proto-capitalism uh, and uh, democratic capitalism. I don't think that is an inevitable uh, development in the next few years. So I think we can help um, to shape um, the argument or the debate in, in, in the United States in a way which would help China and frankly help the United States. Though we're more likely to have credibility in doing that if we can demonstrate to the United States that we should be taken seriously as a partner because in all those areas of civil power which I mentioned, we're actually prepared to deliver. Right, we'll take um, three, more, um, three more questions. Um, okay. um, Dominic Brett, the European Commission. Thank you. Yeah, Dominic Brett, European Commission representation here in London. I, I'd just like to push you, if I might, on the, on the issue of relations with Russia. Uh, President Yushchenko of the Ukraine, as you know, was in town last week. Uh, Gordon Brown, he issued a statement, Brown basically giving backing for ultimate Ukrainian membership of the EU. Now, in a context of, of as you say, increasingly fraught relations with Russia, um, and an increase in, in, and, and, and increasingly assertive Russia, how do you think the EU should play that? Well, sorry, oh, sorry. sorry. Well, 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 we'll do them like this. The lady right at the back said her, had her arm up for a while. There's a gentleman over there who caught my attention as well. Thank you, Kim Bittuce. You mentioned Balkans earlier and not so proud period uh, that Europe played during the early 90s. During the late 90s, Europe played quite different role and has been key, especially in solving Kosovo status. Now, most of the EU countries have recognized the uh, independence, but not all. And the administration, which is to take over from UN 
it's meant to be delayed, most probably. How do you think that delay could affect that role that the EU has played and so stability in the Balkans? And what could EU do more to bring the Balkans faster into EU, in particular after the elections in Serbia, the, the decisive lead of pro-European forces? Thank you. Gentleman over there. Uh, Donald Davidson. I mean, <coughs> you, may, you referred to, of course, the problems of the Iraq war. Well, you know, surely the Iraq war shows the, the impossibility, ultimately, of having a common European foreign policy. I mean, maybe you can, okay, maybe you can, uh, I mean, yeah, because obviously we all saw the, the, how it all divided, and Rumsfeld's jibe is about, <coughs> you know, old Europe and new Europe. Well, it doesn't matter what, whatever you think Rumsfeld, the point is that there's a point there of this fundamental division. And, of course, and someone's mentioned, even, even on Kosovo, you know, Spain and was it Slovakia, for example, although the Grumpy went longer, they're, they're, they're still, still opposed to it. So I'm just thinking when it comes to, you know, the whole point of the Iraq war is that it was a huge international crisis. And, of course, you know, guess what? They will split according to their own national interests. Well, can I, can I deal with that question first? I've failed miserably if the impression that you've got is that I don't think that it's a good idea to have a common foreign and security policy whenever we, wherever we can. My... Uh, the issue for me is that we don't have a sufficiently robust common foreign and security policy uh, in areas where we uh, should have one. I think there are all sorts of reasons for that, the main one of which, as I said, is a question of political will in some areas. I happen to think that it was more excusable for us to fall apart over Iraq, where some of the issues were initially so difficult, not for some of us who thought it was a terrible idea from the, first, from the very beginning. But I think it was more understandable that we should find it difficult to develop a common position on Iraq um, than that we failed uh, to develop a position on Russia or, or the Middle East. Um, so for me, the question is, um, not that um, uh, these crazed Europeans are taking away um, our ability to make foreign policy, but they're not, we're not in this country across Europe working together sufficiently uh, to uh, make common positions actually stick, and that that is a question of political will. And that's certainly true uh, in relation to uh, Kosovo. Um, I think it's been a huge mistake for some member states to see Kosovo in terms of their own domestic political arguments about devolution. Um, I think it's been a terrible error. The reason why um, we could never countenance stuffing Kosovo back into Serbia is because of uh, years of Kosovar reactions uh, to Milosevic and to uh, domination by um, Serbia. Uh, I think it would have been impossible for us to come to any other conclusion. And I think it's um, particularly unfortunate that in that country where we were all prepared to uh, go to war, we're not prepared um, to accept the same um, political outcome today. 
What's my position overall on the Balkans? Um, I'm rather hard line. I think membership of the European Union is serious. Um, I, it's my own judgment that we were m much too keen on the politics of allowing Bulgaria and Romania in rather than insisting on them actually meeting the obligations of membership. I think we bent the rules in order to allow Romania and Bulgaria in. I think we kidded ourselves that they were that Bulgaria was serious about organized crime and corruption, for example, which is still a huge problem. When you turn to the Balkans, the route to the European Union, which we have given them, the stabilization and association process, is a serious, serious um, uh, approach to Europe, like the European agreements in the Central and Eastern Europe, European um, uh, now member states. And we shouldn't be prepared to dilute our standards. We shouldn't be prepared to bend the rules in order to accommodate this or that political party in an election campaign. If there are those in Serbia who think that Serbia should embrace the Belarusian model, then it's very bad luck on the people of Serbia, but there isn't very much, in my view, that we can do about it for the time being in the European Union. I think we're much more likely to strengthen the hand of the pro-EU parties in Serbia and in other um, West Balkan states if we're pretty tough on what it means to be a member of the European Union. How can you really allow Serbia very far along the road towards the European Union if it still won't comply with international, the international rule of law uh, and with the tribunal at the Hague? How can you really um, um, allow them very far along the road uh, if they um, continue to hide Mladic, uh, for example? We took, sorry to sound as I'm taking sides, so I suppose I am, we took a pretty hot, strong line about Gotovina with the Croatians and they um, served him up. So I think we have to be tough about our standards in the European Union and it's hugely in the interests of Balkan countries um, if we are so. Very unfair to those Balkan countries which are really making an effort and I think most of the time Macedonia has been in that category. Sorry, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, just in case the Greek ambassador is here. Um, Plenty of Greeks in the audience, I'm sure. I, I, think, I think it is um, uh, extremely um, unfair to the pro-Europeans there um, if we appear to be uh, weakening um, the uh, rules as far as uh, mm. other people are concerned. Lastly, Russia and the Ukraine. Look, I don't believe that um, Russia has always been in the wrong in its dealings with um, uh, Europe and the United States. I think that the unilateral uh, abrogation of uh, treaties of ABM 
and so on has been a terrible error. Um, <clears throat> I don't know why we've allowed ourselves to get into this row about Star Wars kit to prevent the Iranians um, shelling New York. I mean, um, and I think that the NATO argument has been deeply misconceived. Um, I can understand why the Russians should feel that Ukraine as a member of NATO is um, a real uh, infringement on their security. Why are we so keen on the Ukraine being a member of NATO? Because it allows us to some extent to cop out of encouraging them to become a member of the European Union. Now, admittedly, both NATO, theoretically, and the European Union are run from Brussels. I say in the case of NATO, theoretically. Um, but I would have been uh, intellectually and politically far more in, far more in favour of us um, pushing the packet on the membership of the European Union rather than on membership of NATO, which would, I think, have had made far more political sense in Ukraine. A victim of all this has been Moldova, a wretchedly poor country, uh, which is crippled by Transnistria and the way Transnistria is still run by a gang of thugs and criminals, um, thanks in part to the covert protection of Russia, making a point about other uh, parts of the region. Um, I think we've behaved pretty badly about Moldova, uh, and the sooner we get our, uh, ourselves straight on the Ukraine, perhaps the sooner we'll be able to um, take uh, a, more, a more generous view of Moldova. One last point about the Ukraine. I've just been um, reading a book about Joseph Conrad, who was born near what was then called Lvov, and then became Lvov, and then became Limburg, I think, and then Lviv or the other way around. Um, and you look at the boundaries of the Ukraine um, in that um, really good little book by Anne Reid. I think she's called Borderlands. And you tell me what's Europe and what isn't. Um, I think that... Uh, having been to Lvov, whatever it's called now, um, it seemed to me as I was eating a, uh, a poppy seed bun in the marketplace that Lvov is middle Europe <laughs> and just as much a part of Europe as some of the cities of uh, the Central and Eastern European countries that we've recently embraced. So um, I feel as strongly about the Ukraine issue as I do about the Turkish issue, and that's saying something. 
how would the Russians react to um, European Union membership rather than NATO membership? Not well, but they'd have less of a case um, to make than they do in relation to NATO. Right, well, sadly, we have to draw things to a close now. Um, Chris, you've given us a really a rich and thoughtful and uh, quite provocative um, hour and a half, um, which we've enjoyed immensely. We'd love to host a launch for your book. When is it, when is it due out? The 2nd of October, Penguin. Right, um, I'm sure a very reasonable price. Excellent. Well, I'm sure you will outdo what George Soros just managed in book sales. Now, we would love to have you back very, very soon. Thank you for giving some magnificent um, time. Thank you all in the audience for some really great questions, actually, today, I thought. Um, sure, well every up to day. the standard. Every, always, always. But I thought tonight was particularly good. Um, so thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you very much. Really fantastic. Marvellous, marvellous, marvellous.